0: You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. It's a joy to be here today. Uh, Other than being at my own church in San Francisco, this is my favorite place to be. The uh, reality is um, Dave Lomas in particular has been just such a great friend of mine for all these years we've been going. And every time I come into the reality offices, it just feels like home. So it feels uh, like a, a lot of uh, friendly faces and people that are just uh, real partners in the gospel and brothers and sisters in Christ in the city. So I'm grateful for all of you guys. I bring you greetings from Christ Church out in the Richmond district, way out in the Richmond district. But um, it, we're going to be in Second uh, in Corinthians this morning and, and diving into some of this. Um, But I want to just uh, read the scripture we're going to be in today, and then then we'll pray and, and get going here. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that the fact that your word exists tells us that you want to be known by us. We also thank you, Lord, that none of us are in this room this morning by accident, but we are all here because you have drawn us here to hear your word. You want us to be known by you, Lord. So no matter how we walked in these doors, whether we knew a lot about Christianity or we're brand new to it, whether we're struggling, whether we're feeling good, whether we had a great Christmas or a bad Christmas, no matter who we are or where we've come from or what kind of life we've had, you're going to meet us today. Our great hope this morning is that your Holy Spirit is present and active in this room to give us understanding, to challenge us, and to encourage us. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to faithfully proclaim your word. And most of all, Lord, I pray that every single one of us would walk out of here today changed because of the power of your word and the power of your spirit. That we would leave here today understanding more about what it means to love and live for Jesus, but also not just understanding it, committing ourselves to it, Lord, That we would walk from here desiring to love you and to serve you with all that we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, C.S. Lewis wrote, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. That quote's been on my mind a lot as I come to the end of 2013 and, and start thinking through what all happened this past year and think through like what's coming up on this next year and I'm thinking through that quote as I was reading it do I really believe that he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone do I really believe that I have been adopted into God's family that I've been made his dearly loved son and that nothing else in this world not accomplishment not money not resume nothing nothing can add to that in a sniffing away that when I have God, I truly have absolutely everything. Now, at the end of the year, is a natural time to evaluate your previous year and to think about the coming year, but I think we have to go back and really consider our identity in Christ. And if you're here today and you're kind of exploring what it is, the crux of all of Christianity is that we believe that God has supernaturally transformed us, changed who we are, and brought us into his family. And if you're here today and you've been a Christian for a really long time, that's still the fundamental truth about you. Everything in your life has to begin with that. There's a a mentor I have. This guy's name is uh, George Sneeman. I wish I had more time to tell you a story. But this guy was a white racist Afrikaner in Africa until Jesus got a hold of him. Was living in South Africa in a comfortable suburb and laid it all down and has devoted the last 30 years of his life to serving the most hopeless and broken parts of Africa. And so he's the kind of guy that's inspiring but a little bit scary to talk to. Because you know he's given it all up to Jesus and I don't know how you guys— have those kind of conversations but I'm really nervous about having a conversation with someone that's truly given it all to Jesus because I'm worried they're going to see the parts of my life that aren't really given over and they're going to challenge me in them but because the Holy Spirit kept prompting me I finally had a phone call with George about two weeks ago and George did exactly that said I want to encourage you to get time alone with the Lord and to consider whether you're really willing to give it all over to him He said way back in the day when when they laid their lives down to go do this ministry in Africa, he and his wife were just led by the Lord to go to a whiteboard and up on this whiteboard to write in black all the things in life that are most precious to them. To recognize that all those things in life that are most precious to them are actually gifts from God. And then to go through those things one by one with a red pen, put a line through it, and say, God, that's yours. One by one. Their children, their vocation, their possessions, everything. Give it over to God as a a recognition on their part that it all belongs to him anyway. And our life is supposed to be spent kind of in this active process of recognizing, God, it all belongs to you. Use it, use me, everything's yours, everything. Now in order to do that, that's kind of scary. It has to come back to who we are in Jesus Christ. If we are really literally to take stock of everything we are and everything we have and deliberately lay it all at Christ's feet, boy, do we have to believe in him. And that belief has to go deep to the core of our heart, otherwise it'll just be a surface show. You can come here Sunday after Sunday and pretend to live your life for Jesus, but it's only when you get to that point of being willing to lay everything down for him that you get to be like Jesus and and be used by him in this city to do amazing things. At the core of our ability to do this is the gospel message of who Jesus is and what he's done So the main idea we're gonna talk about today is how this gospel of Jesus Christ changes absolutely everything about our lives, everything. We're gonna look at how it changes the way we look at ourselves. We're gonna look at how it changes the way we look at others, especially those in your church community. And lastly, we're gonna look at how it changes the way we look at our world as a whole. So first, let's look at how it changes the way we look at ourselves. I know for me personally, one of the biggest challenges after being a Christian for a number of decades is that there's so much familiar Christian language that can cause me, I think cause us, to lose the radical nature of the claim that God is really making here. The verses I just read you say this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him Who for their sake died and was raised. Those are two pretty radical claims, right? That that your life is now controlled by the love of Jesus and that you no longer live your life for yourself, you live it for Jesus if you're a follower of His. Think about those words for a minute. That's a radical claim on your life. It's saying that the driving motivation of your life is not building your resume, the driving motivation of your life is not getting into a bigger house or buying a house or having a comfortable existence. The driving purpose of your life is not finding a spouse and having a family. All those things are great. But it says the driving purpose of your life is living for him and not for yourself. It's a radical claim on us. The reason, though, that that it says we can do that is because we are convinced that he laid his life down for us. And that we know that we are loved and accepted by God. Perfectly loved and perfectly accepted by God. That's also another pretty amazing truth about us. See, no matter what kind of upbringing you had, whether you had great parents or whether you had a broken upbringing, it doesn't matter. Every single one of us from a young age is taught in either observation or just how we are raised. We're taught that in order to be loved and accepted, you have to perform for it. You have to be a certain way to be lovable. You have to be a certain way, otherwise you might lose that person's affection. Growing up, we learn then how to pretend and how to perform. And the better we pretend and the better we perform, the more we can kind of have people love and accept us. But what God says is, my love and acceptance of you is entirely dependent upon Jesus, and he loves you so much that he laid his life down for you, and so you're perfectly loved and accepted. You are freed from all need to pretend, you are freed from all need to perform. The challenge for so many of us, if you have any kind of church background though, is the church so often makes that same kind of pretending and performing the form of religion as well. And so you have, to, you have to behave a certain way, you have to speak a certain way, you have to do a certain thing to be a faithful Christian. But God turns that around and says, you know what, no, you are perfectly loved and accepted no matter what. I don't want you to pretend, I don't want you to perform, I just want you to give your heart to me. Perfectly loved, perfectly accepted, freed to have our joy directly tied to him. And the only way we can really get that freedom is to know that, that we can only find it in Jesus. Without understanding grace, our life cannot possibly get to a place where we're willing to give it over to Jesus. See, grace is an incredible thing. Grace says that though you are separate from me by your choice, God says that to us, that though you have, you have earned wrath and separation, he is going to perfectly love and accept you because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. So grace says that nothing you do matters. Grace says that you're not accepted from God by, by, by how good you are or how bad you are. Nothing impacts your relationship with God because it's entirely dependent upon Jesus, 100%. And then he transforms your nature and the reason you live for him now is because he's changed who you are. Now the challenge for us if we don't get grace is life can either slip in one of two directions in my opinion. Life can either slip in a direction where you don't really, if you don't really get grace then you think you need to earn God's salvation and if you think you need to earn God's favor rather if you think you need to earn it before God, if you think God's more pleased with you when you have a good day and less pleased with you when I have a bad day, what we end up doing is either sliding to this place where we think that, that we don't really need God because I'm doing okay, or we slide to this place where we think that, that I can't ever earn God's favor and so I end up feeling condemned. The radical thing that grace does for us is it tells us again that we are perfectly loved and accepted, and so God has fundamentally transformed your nature and freed you up to be an image bearer of God freed you up to live your life entirely given over to him because he's changed the nature of who you are. Now, it's all the theological theory behind it, but when it hits real life, it can get really difficult. When it hits real life and knowing whether I can really trust, no matter what my circumstances are, that I can know that God is good and that he loves me. That can be easy for me to say living in the 21st century in San Francisco. One of the most challenging things that I've experienced in my life is in the last number of years— uh, through an organization called Hands at Work. I've had the opportunity to go to Africa a number of times, and we're partnering with some churches in a rural area called uh, Mashinica in the country of Malawi. Malawi's got over a million orphans and a population of 14 million people, one of the most broken and hopeless parts of the world that I ever imagined being in. And in May of 2012, we were there for a trip and met this woman named Sakino. And this woman had five kids of her own. Her husband had passed away. And she had six of her nieces and nephews that were her sister's kids because her sister had died as well. This woman had 11 kids living in two mud huts and enough food maybe for one of them. And the look in her eyes was so hopeless. It was absolutely hollow. It looked like she had completely given up on life. Like there was nothing she could do. She looked like she was about ready to bolt. And we spent about an hour with her, talking with her, praying with her, trying to encourage her. But even then, when I left, I was very, very scared and concerned for Sakina. I was thinking of her circumstances and thinking, how can she possibly find hope in the midst of this? If I was faced with her circumstances, two mud huts and not enough food, man, I'd be done. I'd be done. How can I tell her that Jesus' love is enough? It feels so hollow. So this last year in May of 2013, we had the opportunity to go back to that same village and I was anxious. The first house I wanted to visit when we got there was Sakino's house. I wanted to see how she was. I wanted to see how her kids were. I wanted to see if she had survived the previous year. And we get there and we find out when we first get there that this woman had one less mud hut and not enough food that she even had the previous year. One of her mud huts had been entirely blown out by a heavy rainy season that came on, but those same rains that came on heavy early on stopped early, and so she couldn't get a full harvest on her crops. And so everything about her situation was materially worse than the last time I saw her. Everything about it. Eleven kids are now in an eight by eight mud hut, and they have about one tenth of the food they had the previous year. But she was different, she had joy. She was completely transformed. She was at peace and that, that hollow kind of scary look that she had in her eyes that, that was, was life now. And we ask her, is there anything we can pray with you or what, what would you like to do? What can we do with you? And she says, can we sing? And she starts singing this song that we had learned earlier in the community and she's singing this song and she's dancing around and the chorus line of the song is, I've looked high, I've looked low, I've looked here, I've looked there, but there's no one, there's no one There's no one like Jesus. I mean, tears in my eyes thinking like this woman knows what it is to find her hope and her identity in Jesus in a way that I only am beginning to understand. Not tied to her circumstances, not tied to what she thinks has to go a certain way, but completely given over to Jesus. We find out that a church community had come around her in in the the year, had been bringing her to church and teaching her about Jesus and, and grounding her in her faith. And so that not only now was she solid in her faith, but she was now giving back to the community spiritually. That's what the gospel does. It changes the way you view everything. It frees you from pretending. It frees you from performing. And most of all for us, I think in this city, it frees you from thinking that your happiness and your joy in Jesus is tied to your circumstances. It's not doesn't matter if you lose that job or get that job. doesn't matter how big or little your bank account is. What matters is how your relationship with Jesus Christ is. That is your only way to freedom. I've learned so much more than I've been able to teach anyone going over to Malawi. When I read these passages, my thoughts immediately go to our brothers and sisters in Christ over there. When I read that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What we need to get more than anything else, and I'm going to repeat these words over and over again, is that we are perfectly loved and accepted. But we don't just need to get it up here. We can, we can, we can affirm that theologically. We can affirm that in terms of doctrine, in terms of Bible. But that truth of us being loved and accepted that we know intellectually has to drop down to our heart. God has you. It's the core of your being. Loves you at the core of your being. Knows everything about you. Knows things about yourself that you don't even know. Knows the good stuff. Knows the bad stuff. Knows the hidden secret stuff that you don't want to tell anybody. Because you're afraid that if they know that about you, they won't like you. Or they won't accept you or they won't love you. God knows it all. All of it. Everything you ever have done. Everything you ever will do. Every thought. Every deed. Everything. And yet, completely and totally loves and accepts you at the core of your being. And that grips your heart. When you get a hold of that, it, it's freedom. When you get a hold of that, it enables what is said in this passage to become true of your life. That the love of Christ can control us because we've concluded that he's laid his life down for us. That's what God wants for each and every person in here. The gospel fundamentally changes the way we look at ourselves. Let's look back at our passage. The gospel also changes the way we look at each other. In verse 16, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We regard no one according to the flesh we recognize that every single human being is an image-bearer of God that's broken and desperately needs Jesus, and that within our church community, every one of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, they're family. They're not people that just annoy us or people we don't have conversations with. They're not just people that, that I may or may not be friends with. God has supernaturally made everyone in this building right now brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved sons and daughter of our Heavenly Father together. We are going to spend eternity together. He has supernaturally transformed everything about every single person in here that's a follower of Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in an often quoted part of The Weight of Glory, says this. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Do you believe that? I struggle to believe that. That's the overwhelming clear teaching of the Bible. No human being is ordinary. Every single human being is an image bearer of God. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, in this room, in this church, in your community, are people that God has put with you so that you can view them differently. You look at them and say, you know what? This person was so precious to Jesus that he laid his life down for them. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul drives that truth home throughout his epistles. Look at the way that you're viewing each other. Think about the way you're treating each other. The person that you are treating poorly, the person that you're tempted to just ignore or think is annoying or beneath you or not worth your concern, that person was so worthy that Jesus Christ laid his life down for them. Jesus Christ, the almighty creator of the universe, the one through whom everything was created. Everything you know about Jesus, think about all those things, you know, Prince of Peace, That All those amazing titles, Emmanuel, all those amazing titles for what we know of who Jesus is in scripture, that Jesus was willing to lay his life down for every single follower of Jesus Christ you've ever met. That frames how we look at other people. So when I think, is this person, I I don't ask this question directly because I'm not a jerk, Um, is this person really worthy of my time? Right? That phone rings and you're looking at it and you're thinking, do I answer that? Or, or whatever it is, it's social activity, whatever else. When you're, when you're tempted in your life to include or exclude someone based upon your personal understanding of who they are, and your personal assessment of who they are, what the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit and the Bible would tell you to do is consider who they are from God's eyes. This is a person that Jesus Christ laid his life down for. And the Apostle Paul is driving this home over and over again in Scripture, that we are united to Christ, we've been united to each other, we've been made family. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, verses 12 and following. For just as the, as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. I love this phrase right in the middle of this, sandwiched in the middle of this, is that we're one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. What I love about it is that encapsulates absolutely everything. There is no greater religious prejudice, there's no greater ethnic prejudice in the ancient world than Jew and Greek. They lived absolutely separate from each other. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying and saying there's no Jew or Greek, he's saying there is no ethnic or or any other kind of religious barrier between you. Doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, doesn't matter what your nationality is, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no ethnic barrier between you. And no greater economic barrier in their time than slave or free. So, what the Apostle Paul is saying essentially by saying that there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, he is saying that there can be no ethnic thing that divides you, and there can be no socioeconomic thing that divides you because Jesus Christ has made you one. We live in a world, we live in a city that is very ethnically and socioeconomically more socioeconomically than anything else, but socioeconomically divided. People are divided by class so much, and in the midst of that, the Apostle Paul says, not you because you're one in Jesus. What we have the power to do in this city is to show people what it looks like to live as image bearers of God, to show people what it looks like to really be those that believe that there is no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free, no ethnic or socioeconomic difference that can keep us apart. Because the love of Jesus is so powerful that it draws us together. And as we live in in, in unity, as we live unified as a family of God, we put God's love on display for our city. One of the challenges we have as we seek to live in unity is, is division, is conflict. So the question for all of us is, if we really are changing the way we look at each other, and I can look at that person and say, they're my brother, they're my sister, they're the one that Jesus Christ laid his life down for, what the heck do I do when I get into conflict? What do I do when the opportunity for division or strife presents itself in my life? Well, we look at it completely differently. We begin again at this place of identity, and we look completely differently. Think about the way that the world resolves conflict. The world says that if you and I are in conflict, what we should do is we come together and we compromise. Compromise is not a biblical term. Compromise means that that I hold on to as many of my personal preferences and my desires as I possibly can. You hold on to as many of your personal preferences and desires as you possibly can. And we inch towards each other until we meet somewhere in the middle, both of us having preserved the maximum amount of our selfishness we can possibly preserve. It's compromise. Jesus Christ lays that on its head. He says, I've laid my life down for you. And as a first step, I'm asking you to lay your life down for others, to regard no one according to the flesh, to make no judgments according to anyone, to be willing to lay your life down for them because I've laid my life down for you. But they might take advantage of me. I might not get what I want. It's exactly right. But the power of Christ and the love of Christ is so overwhelming for us that we're willing to even be taken advantage of. Now... It's got its limits at some point. Obviously, God's not asking you to, to be a doormat for anyone and everyone, but he's asking you to fundamentally change your posture, which is not to ask, like, how can I get what I want from this person, but to ask, how can I lay my life down for this person? And we cannot do that without the power of the gospel. Ken Sandy, a guy that's given his life, last 30, 40 years anyway, um, to conflict resolution in churches. Ken Sandy wrote a book called Peacemaker and has a ministry now called Relational Wisdom. I've learned so much from Ken Sandy, but he, he shares this kind of silly illustration, but it's, but it's an effective illustration, so I'm going to share it. Um, Ken Sandy says, this this is what it's like to try to resolve conflict without the gospel. He said, it's like a guy from the city that goes out to the country. And this guy from the city, he's found his dream home in the country because, you know, he's got everything he wants. He's got all the square footage he wants. He's got all the land he wants. And he's sitting out on his back porch. But the only thing ruined is that that ridgeline has about 100 trees on it. And if those 100 trees were gone, he would have an expansive view of the entire valley. So he decides, in order for his home to be absolutely perfect, he has to get rid of those trees. And so he goes to the hardware store, and this guy knows nothing about cutting down trees, nothing about hardware. Goes to the hardware store guy in the little town he's in, and he says, I need to cut down 100 trees. What what can I do? And the guy sells him a chainsaw. He says, in a morning, you'll be done tops. It'll be easy. So the guy's pretty excited. He takes the chainsaw home, and, and the next day, he comes back into the hardware store, and he looks awful. He just looks like someone's just beating the crap out of him. He's all sweaty. He's all tired. He's exhausted. And he's angry. And he's looking at the hardware store owner. He says, you sold me a hunk of junk. You told me that I could cut down 100 trees. I spent all day. I cut down six. What are you trying to pull? The hardware store owner's kind of confused. He looks at him and he says, seriously? Takes the chainsaw, fires it up, and it's like... And the city guy goes, It has a motor? Dumb illustration on one point, right? Because who would ever try to cut down a ton of trees with a chainsaw without ever cranking up the motor? Every time that you or me try to resolve conflict and live in unity without the power of the gospel, without the power of the love of Jesus Christ, without the love of Jesus Christ controlling us, it's exactly the same thing. We have no power, no ability on our own to live in unity. Our ability and our power to live in unity and to love and to forgive and to be reconciled comes entirely from the gospel and the gospel alone. And so our first step when we are desiring to live in unity is to recognize that we need Jesus to do that. That we need to recognize that that we are called to live together and that we can love each other only because he's loved us first. The gospel fundamentally changes the way we look at ourselves. We talked about first. Then it fundamentally changes the way we look at each other. Lastly, we're going to talk about how it changes the way we look at the world. All over Scripture, we know that we are called in in various plays, um, we're called to do Christ's work. We're really called to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Jesus said that I'm going to ascend into heaven, but you are going to continue my mission. And so our call is to bring life and love and healing and grace to wherever we go. We're called to live for Christ and we're called to live for this world. We have been commissioned by Christ to live for him. Us being reconciled by Christ and now controlled by his love, it means that we've received grace, but we haven't just received grace for ourselves. He has given us grace so that we can turn around and be those that give grace and give life to others. Let's look back at our passage here, verses 18 and following. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation Think about how many times in those short three verses the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to look outward and to serve outward. Five times in that passage he tells us various ways. He says that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. By that very definition, ministry means that you are going and serving and caring for somebody else. He says that he was reconciling the world to himself. Again, drawing our eyes outward. God loves this world and is concerned about this world. And then he says that he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So God is is doing his work, but he's doing his work now through us. He's entrusting this message to us. And he says here that we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador by its very definition doesn't represent his own interests or her own interests. An ambassador represents the interests of those that sent them. We are those sent by Jesus Christ to represent his interests and to do his work. And if if we're too slow to get all that, the Apostle Paul throws in one more time, God making his appeal through us. There can be no doubt when you read scripture, even just reading this passage, but when you read the rest of the Bible, there can be no doubt that God has left us in this world, given us his grace, reconciled us to himself. No doubt that the reason he's done that is so you can be here to serve and to love and to care for others. So you can be here to extend the work of Jesus Christ in this world. That's why he's left you here. That's why he's left me here. Every single one of us has been given the ministry of reconciliation so that we collectively together as a church, as we participate in God's new creation, as we take on this identity of Jesus Christ, we can live for Jesus in this world and it changes the way we look at absolutely everybody. He made him, sin, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What I love about the way the Bible talks about our identity is that, that God talks about us in a way that sometimes feels a little bit uncomfortable because he tells me things that he says are true about me that I don't really believe are true about me. He says that, that he's transformed my heart from the inside out and that streams of living water can now flow forward from me. He says in our passage today that, that, that I can be controlled by the love of Jesus, regard no one according to the flesh, and love and serve everyone in the same way that Jesus would love and serve them. Those are the claims he makes about you. He calls you a son. He calls you a daughter. He tells you that you are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he tells you that you are an ambassador now sent by him to go out in this world and to represent him. He has made us capable and able of doing these things. I've been reading a book over Christmas called In God's Underground. And the book's by a guy named Richard Wormbrand, And this guy spent 14 years in communist Romanian prisons because of his faith. 14 years because he refused to renounce Jesus and he refused to stop preaching the gospel. And so he's sharing these stories about, about prison ministry. These men that are, that are starved to death. These men that are beaten. These men that are, that are undergoing incredible pain and torture. But he says the most incredible thing in prison was seeing how much the Christians grew and how much God helped them to love and to serve others. So you would see a, a dying man who himself doesn't have enough food to eat as a believer, giving his bread to somebody else who's worse off than he is. You would see this Richard Wormbrand guy himself who struggled with tuberculosis for years and years and years. His family smuggles tuberculosis medication into prison for him. The first thing he does when he gets the medication is not take it himself so he can be healed. He asks who is most in danger right now and ends up giving that medication to a former Nazi guard. Incredible. But the thing that stuck with me this, all these stories in reading about Richard Wormbrand and the power of God's love is in one room where there was a, they would send people to die in this room four. And in this room, he said that because of the power and the love of Jesus and because of real sacrifice of real Christians for the Christians, not one man died without making a profession of faith. But he said this is why. He, one of these men is on his deathbed, and he says, I can't understand this Jesus you're talking about. I can't understand how anyone can be that loving and that gracious and that amazing. And Richard Wormbrand's able to say to this guy, if you want to understand what the character of Jesus looks like, if you want to understand how Jesus loves and how he sacrifices, look at me. And he said that in a prideful way. He said that, that I have sought to embody the character of Jesus in this prison. I have given everything up for the lives and for the health and for the spiritual well-being of all of those that were around me. And the guy says back to him, if Jesus is like you, then I want to serve him, and I want to love him, and I want to know him. And I thought about that phrase. If you want to know what the character of Jesus looks like, look at my life. How many of us could stand up and proclaim that? Again, this is not saying that we have to be perfect. But how many of us are confident that we are living our lives devoted to trying to walk out and live out the character of Jesus, wanting our neighbors to know what the love and the character of Jesus is and looks like by looking at our lives, not putting on fake behavior. I went through that. That's not what we're after, but trying to just radically live out what it means to love and to lay our lives down for Jesus. It's radical and incredible stuff, but God has made us capable and able of doing these things. We're closing up here in a minute, but, but one of the things that's so powerful to me, um, I love reading old, old saints from, from past centuries. Uh, John Chrysostom is a fourth century character that I, I love reading especially because of his insight into scripture. And what's amazing to me is when you read these words that were written in the fourth century and they directly speak to our modern situation, it just speaks to me of how incredibly transcendent God's word is. So here's what he says about each and every one of us. He, he tells us that, that God doesn't just give you life, but he makes you a life giver. And he tells us that over and over again in Scripture, Jesus has qualified us to do this work. When I hear, look at me, if you want to know what Jesus is like, I get overwhelmed and think I could never be enough like Jesus that my neighbors could see him through my life. But here's, here's Chrysostom's encouragement. By saying who, who has qualified us, Paul emphasizes an important point. For example, if a person of low rank were to become a king... He would have the power to make any person he wishes governor. And this is the extent of his power, namely that he can give such a dignity. He cannot, however, make the person he has chosen worthy for the office. And often the honor thus conferred make a person ridiculous. If, however, he has both conferred the honor and made the person worthy of it and capable of exercising it, then a very great honor has indeed been conferred. This is what Paul says here, that God not only has given the honor, but also made us strong enough to receive it. That's what we're called to believe. That's what faith is. Faith isn't just that Jesus Christ died for you and laid his life down for you. Faith is that Jesus Christ is continuing to work in your life and empowering you, making you capable and able of living like him in a radical way in this world, so radical that people can see what the love of Jesus looks like in your life. Now, I had the opportunity last September um, to spend about three days with, uh, with eight other pastors and three days on this, this whole self-awareness retreat, but really it was around grace. Just meditating on grace, deeply on grace, and I was so incredibly encouraged at this conference. Little, not really a conference, a little retreat. So eight guys were praying, we're going through God's word, we're encouraging each other, we're challenging each other, and, and I, I wanted to be there forever because I, I felt like I'm really understanding grace now for the first time in a long time. I, I get it. I wanna live this out, I can't wait to get back out there and live out grace. I stayed at this conference as long as I possibly could and then I had to rush to the airport to catch my flight. And I I kinda pushed the limit a little bit and and, uh, was trying to make up on time. But I get to the airport and it's about 45 minutes before my flight's gonna take off. And and so I return the car real quick, I'm racing up there. By the time I get to security it's about 30 minutes before my flight's about to take off. And so I'm starting to get a little bit nervous, I'm gonna miss my flight. And so I come up to security and there's two lines and in this line is this seasoned looking older businessman. And in this line is a bunch of families that look like they're going to take all my time in the world. So again, I just spent three days thinking all about grace and looking at people differently. And immediately, all I'm looking at is who is going to be the, the, the least obstacle in my way. I look over there. Families are, no, they're messy, they're complicated. Okay, this businessman, he's my ticket. So I get in line behind this businessman, convinced i have made the, the wisest decision I could possibly make. And this guy Begins to fumble through his stuff. And I'm just getting annoyed. I'm like, oh my goodness, man. So, this guy, he can't get his bag open. He can't get the stuff out of his bag. His face is looking kind of despondent and kind of sad, like he looks like something's kind of wrong with him. And all I'm thinking is, this guy's going to make me miss my plane. Again, I'm I, three days meditating on grace, and I'm thinking, this guy's going to make me miss my plane. And so he, he's fumbling through his stuff, and he finally gets it all out, and he finally gets his shoes off, and finally gets his belt off. And I'm thinking, can I go around him? Is, there, is, it, is it acceptable for me to kind of throw my bag in and go around him? And then the guy pulls out this perfume bottle, and he drops it on the ground, and glass breaks everywhere. And I'm in socks. Right? And so I'm thinking, now, now this guy is a monumental obstacle, Right? Now I'm completely justified in slipping around him. So I'm thinking, again, I'm not worried about this guy's day. I'm not worried about what he's going through. I'm thinking he's an obstacle. I need to get around him. And I'm kind of stepping around him, and I kind of slide in, and my bag's just about to go through the little thing, and I'm home free. I'm going to make my plane. And he turns around, and his foot's bleeding. And this guy looks at the TSA agent, who they're not very compassionate people, um, and this woman looks angry with him. She looked angry with him from all along, but now that he's kind of broken the glass on the thing, she, she's calling, she's like, we need to clean up. And, then he, and then, he, then he cuts his foot and he's bleeding and she's like, oh, come on. She's like, now we need medical services. And again, all I'm thinking about is how much of an obstacle this guy's gonna be towards me to be able to get through the gate. And, and I'm looking at his foot and it's all full of blood and I'm grateful that my feet are clear of the glass. And literally, I, I can go through the gate and then, I, then the Holy Spirit speaks to me. Um which is always convicting and encouraging, right? <laughs> the Holy Spirit says, that's an image bearer of God that needs grace. And I, in my backpack, I have a first aid kit. And I was ready to just blow through there, not show any kind of love or compassion for this guy because I was so concerned with getting my agenda done that his, he, he just became an obstacle to me. And so I yanked my bag back out of the little turnstile thing, I open up my, my backpack, I get him, get him out these little uh, first aid wipes and a band-aid, and I hand it to him, and it was incredible, like, to see his face completely transform. Like, like, it looked like the guy believed there was, like, love in the world still. He went from looking, like, completely soul, almost like he was going to cry, which is really sad to see an old man looking like that, to just the simple act of kindness, of, of showing compassion and concern for the guy, giving a band-aid, giving him a little first aid wipe, and it transformed his day. See, I don't think we all need to stand on a street corner and preach the gospel. What I think we need to do is take advantage of opportunities to look at other people as image bearers of God that desperately need grace. And then to walk it out. I mean, it made me cry later on when I was praying and thinking about how I was so concerned with my own agenda and what I needed to do that I almost walked completely away from this guy without showing him any love, compassion, or grace. And I think our lives are lived out that way so much. We look at people in the city as people that are either people that can help us or people that are obstacles to us and we navigate our way through without recognizing that God has put these people in front of you right now because he wants you to look at them differently and he wants you to love them and he wants you to serve them and he wants your life to be transformed so much that he's gonna use you to transform their lives. If we as brothers and sisters in Christ in the city really genuinely believe the gospel changes everything, and we look at ourselves as perfectly loved and accepted so our identity is secure in Jesus. And we, and we really desire him to control our life with his love and so we can live out his thing. And then we look at each other differently in our church community. And we say, we are going to uniquely live as family. I'm going to love and serve you and that annoying guy. I'm going to love and serve everybody that God puts in my path. And then we look at our city differently together. That's when the city is going to begin to see what the love of Jesus looks like. That's why I'm grateful for the fruit that God has at Reality Church. I am so encouraged by you guys. We did the Serve the City Day with you guys back in August, and it was a wonderful blessing. But what I want to see is is churches like ours and yours recognizing that we are not competing franchises. We are brothers and sisters in Christ sent to this city at this present moment to live in this city in such a radical way that the city cannot help but see what the love of Jesus looks like. And man, once they see it, I guarantee you they'll be drawn to it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your compassion in our own lives. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage and the ability to live this life for you. Give us the courage, give us the ability to walk our lives out in this city so that people cannot help but see what the love of Jesus looks like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.